Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain with JG Ministries. I'm glad you joined us today. We are studying God's Word here at JG Ministries Bible Study, and we are in the book of Luke. In fact, we are in chapter 11 and looking at verse 3 of chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the third verse of chapter 11, and let's get into it. Now, last time we finished chapter 10 with the story of Mary and Martha to stress the importance of keeping the kingdom of God center in our lives. And we began chapter 11 with the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray. So here in verse 11, we will continue with this subject of prayer. But let's go back to our scripture and let's reread verse 3 and 4. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the first of the three petitions related is for bread, representing food in general. The meaning of the word translated daily is obscure, so the context of the word becomes crucial. The petition can be paraphrased in the Greek word order as follows. Our bread, the daily, keep giving us each day. And each day is an emphatic position at the end of the clause. The word daily may mean for tomorrow, the next day. And this would be appropriate if it were an evening prayer. It could also signify eschatological bread, that is, God's abundant provision at the consummation of the kingdom. If that is the meaning, then Jesus asks us to pray for the provision of this aspect of the future feast in our own lives now. And finally, the word daily may also mean sufficient. This meaning fits in with Luke's stress on depending on God for present needs. To trust God for sufficient food day by day was important to people in Jesus' time, because many were hired only a day time or paid with their wages at the end of that day. When the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they had to learn to trust God for manna day by day. Having thus sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the petitioner is taught to make known his personal needs and desires. The ever-reoccurring need for food, both physical and spiritual, is introduced. We are to live in daily dependence upon God, acknowledging Him as the source of every good. And next here in verse 4, there is the prayer for the forgiveness of sins, based on the fact that we have shown a forgiving spirit to others. Now, obviously, this does not refer to forgiveness from the penalty of sin. That forgiveness is based upon the finished work of Christ at Calvary, and it's received through faith alone by God's grace. But here we are dealing with parental or governmental forgiveness. After we are saved, God deals with us as with children. If he has an unforgiving spirit in our hearts, he will chastise us until we are broke and brought back into fellowship with God. This forgiveness has to do 
with the fellowship with God rather than with relationship. Forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts describes a petition that must be repeated as needed. Those who call God Father are believers, already justified and without guilt through the death of Christ. Therefore, the forgiveness they must extend to others is based on the prerequisite of the Father. Conversely, one who does not forgive others may actually be revealing that he or she has not really known God's forgiveness. And the plea, and do not lead us into temptation, can present some difficulties to some. We know that God never tempts anyone to sin, but he does allow us to experience trials and testings in our lives. And these are designed for our good. Here the thought seems to be that we should constantly be aware of our own proneness to wander and to fall into sin. We should ask the Lord to keep us from failing into sin, even if we ourselves might want to do it. We should pray that the opportunity to sin and the desire to do so should never coincide. The prayer expresses a healthy distrust of our own ability to resist temptation. And the prayer ends with a plea for deliverance from the evil one. It is not in temptation, does not imply that God entices to do evil. And as I've mentioned, God does, however, allow his people to be tested as to their faithfulness. Thus, testing is maybe a better translation than temptation, though severe testing may be the occasion for one's sin. The request is clearly for the father to keep his children from falling away in the hour of trial, with a possible allusion to the temptation and the fidelity of Christ. Now, that in this section about the model of the prayer, now let's move on to the two parables on prayer. So let's go back to our scriptures and let's take a look at verses 5 through 8, where we have a friend comes at midnight. And verse 5 begins, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet... Because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So taking a look at verse 5, and I'm going to take a look at verses 5 and 6 together. Jesus' teaching um, gives us an illustration that's designed to show God's willingness to hear and answer the petitions of his children. So we have Jesus' teaching on prayer continuing with verse 5 and going into verses up to 13 with a parable that's unique to Luke. Now the scene is that of a Palestinian home in which the family are all asleep in one room, and it's probably perhaps the only room in the house, and probably they all slept on one mat, which was the custom during those times. Now, the story has to do with a man 
who had a guest that arrived at his home at midnight. And unfortunately, this man that came did not have enough food on him. His neighbor, he knocks on his neighbor's door and he asks for three loaves of bread. At first, the neighbor was annoyed by the interruption to his sleep and he didn't bother to get up. Yet because of the prolonged banging and shouting of the worried host, he finally gets up and gives him what he needs. Now the father could not get over to the door and slide back the heavy bolt that bars it without waking up his family. Because in such a situation, no one would be happy to respond, especially in the middle of the night. But nevertheless, this man does respond to his friends. A host in first century society would be expected to provide some type of a meal or a welcome meal to a guest, regardless of when they had arrived. That was the custom in biblical times. Now, in verses 7 and 8, we see the applying of this illustration. We must be careful to avoid certain conclusions. It doesn't mean that God is annoyed by our per, uh, persistent request. And it doesn't suggest that the only way to get our prayers answered would be the point of the parable depends partly on the context and partly on the meaning of the word persistence or boldness or even opportunity. If it means persistence, the parable would seem to teach that if we persist long enough, God will finally answer our prayers. But since the Bible refers frequently to God's eagerness to grant our request, boldness is probably a more likely translation. This parable then presents a contrast to the way God answers prayer. If in human circumstances one will respond to requests, though reluctantly, if pressed hard enough, surely God will answer and do so far more graciously. It teaches that if a man is willing to help a friend because of his opportunity, God is much more willing to hear the cries of his children. And in verses 9 and 10, let's go back to our scriptures here, because we're going to enter on a new section here. Keep asking, seeking, and knocking, which is going to be a continuation here. And verse 9 begins, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, I will open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now in verses 9 and 10 that we're going to begin with here, in threefold pedicles that everyone who asks, not simply the persistent, will receive from God. It teaches that we should not grow weary or discouraged in our prayer life. Keep on asking, keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Sometimes God answers our prayers the first time we ask. And in other cases, he answers only after prolonged asking. The parable seems to teach increasing degrees of importunity, asking to seeking to knocking. 
teaches that everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks find, and everyone who knocks has it opened to him. This is a promise that when we pray, God always gives us what we ask for, or he gives something better. A no answer to prayer means that he knows our requests would not be the best for us. His denial is then better than our petition. And I want to take a, a quick side note here. God answers prayers. Sometimes when hearts are weak, it's the very gifts believers seek, but often faith must learn a deeper rest and trust God's silence when he does not speak. For God, whose name is love, will send the best. Stars may burn out, nor mountain walls endure, but God is true. His promises are sure. God is our strength. So now let's take a look at verses 11 and 12. It teaches that God will never deceive us a stone when we ask for bread. Bread in those days was shaped in a round, flat cake, and it resembled a stone. And God will never mock us by giving us something inedible when we ask for food. If we ask for fish, he will not give us a serpent that is something that might destroy us. And if we ask for an egg, he will not give us a scorpion that is something that would cause excruciating pain. So the bizarre examples in the verse 11 and 12 point that God will respond to our petitions only in kindness. And in verse 13, a human father would not give bad gifts, even though he has a sinful nature. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. So how much more is our Heavenly Father willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It is significant that the gift he selects as the one we most need and the one he most desires to give is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke, the Spirit had not yet been given. And we read about that in the book of John, chapter 7. We should not pray today for the Holy Spirit to be given to us as an indwelling person because he comes to indwell us at the time of our conversion. But it is certainly proper and necessary for us to pray for the Holy Spirit in other ways. We should pray that we will be teachable by the Holy Spirit and that we will be guided by the Spirit and that his power will be poured out on us in all service of Christ. It is quite possible that when Jesus taught the disciples to ask for the Holy Spirit, he was referring to the power of the power of the Spirit, enabling them to live the otherworldly type of discipleship, which he had been teaching in these preceding chapters. And by this time, they were probably feeling how utterly impossible it was for them to meet the test of discipleship in their own strength. And this is, of course, true. The Holy Spirit is the power that enables to live the Christian life. So Jesus pictured God as anxious to give this power to those who ask for it. 
Now, in the original Greek, verse 13 does not say that God will give the Holy Spirit, but rather he will give Holy Spirit. In this passage, it is not so much a prayer for the person of the Holy Spirit, but rather for his ministry in our lives. And there are two steps in the argument. The first one is God is our Heavenly Father and will do no less for his children than an earthly father. And the second one is God is perfect and will do much more than a sinful person would. While Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 has the general term good gifts, Luke specifically mentions the Holy Spirit who was promised. And that's going to wrap us up for today. Next time, we will get into the growing opposition where Jesus answers his critics and we will see about the section of Jesus and Beelzebub. So until then, God bless you, and keep living Christian strong.